Well, I am excited about this series that we're kicking off today. Uh, let me say thank you, first of all, to all of our, our ministers here in-house who've been ministering to you over the, the last month. We had some good <laughs> preaching in here. Amen. It was just so nice to just sit there and soak it up. I mean, week after week, I've just been spoiled here. So, But uh, I'm sorry you have me again today. And we're going to be in this series throughout the rest of the, the most of the summer here. We're calling it Bear Fruit. Because that is exactly what Jesus said he wants to see happening inside us. What does it mean to bear fruit? In a nutshell, it means to become more like Jesus, which is what we're all about here, helping each other become more like Jesus, to love better, to represent who Jesus really is to this world around us. It's, and, and yes, learning to act like Jesus is going to mean learning to act less like jerks. And so that'll be uh, just a wonderful bonus. Um, Jesus said this in John chapter 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now he says, apart from me, you can't accomplish anything. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. My father is honored by this, that you bear much fruit and show that you are my disciples. So, praise the Lord. He, I believe God is going to speak to us uh, as a church, on a community level, and, and on a personal level, each of us. He's got something very distinct and personal, I think, for different folks in the room today, I believe, as well. Now, what does this fruit look like? Well, one of the most famous passages that fleshes this out, of course, comes from Galatians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul, he lists these nine virtues that flow out of us when we're abiding in him, like Jesus said, abide in me. In Galatians 5, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. If we had the children and they could all say it with me, I bet. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, whew, and self-control. I know. If only there were eight. Against such things, there is no law. These are the kind of things the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. And what's interesting to note here is that when Paul mentions these things, a lot of scholars have pointed out that he calls it the fruit of the Spirit. It's singular, the fruit, um, rather than the fruits, which, you know, you could say in English, you could do the same thing in Greek. It would have been a very natural thing since he's listing all these virtues. He could have said the fruits of the Spirit, um, especially also, and, and right before this, he lists these works of the flesh, these sort of sins that come out, and uh, he, he calls them this plural form, the works. So you would think he would have come and said the fruits of the Spirit, but instead, Paul's driving home the point here that this is a complete picture of what God wants to do in us. This is the fruit, right? It's the fruit. This is the evidence of what God wants to do in you. And all of these things, all of these things should be evident in our life. We don't get to pick and choose which fruit we want to let him grow and which we're just going to skip. Signing up for the kingdom of God is signing up for the whole package. As you can see, the, what, what is the, the number one trait listed first? Love. Love is right there, prominent, right there at the beginning of the list. In fact, interesting, some uh, theologians have suggested, based on the grammar here in, in the Greek, that love is not just the first thing on the list, but love is the list. In other words, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. And possibly a more uh, accurate way to write this in English might be to write love with a colon, and then list all the way that love manifests itself. 
Um, I like this explanation, love. And what does love look like? It makes sense because we are image bearers of God, right? And we serve the God who is, it's all right, you can talk. Yeah, God is love. So, so we're image bearers of the God who is love. And this would also harmonize with what we find other places in scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, often known as the love chapter, right? Where the apostle Paul talks about all the characteristics of love. And so we could put it this way, maybe Paul begins his list of the fruit of the Spirit with love because all of the other fruit of the Spirit is really an outgrowth of love. It's all, it's all an outgrowth of love. So we're going to kick off this series today by focusing on this first fruit, if you will, of love. So if you have your Bibles, you can open, up, open them up to uh, Galatians chapter 5. That's kind of where we're going to be camping out today. Now, to give you just a little context of what's happening here in this letter, since we're jumping into the middle of it, uh, this letter to the Galatians, whom Paul is writing to, uh, they're a community of churches in a region that's spread out, and they're, they have been struggling with these two extremes of the faith, as Paul's writing to these folks. There's kind of two things going on here, almost like two gutters in a bowling alley. They've been getting in trouble here. If you hit one side or the other, you know, you're doomed, you, you know, no points, there's no recovery. And the two extremes that Paul's been dealing with here is legalism and license. You can think of it that way. Legalism is the, the temptation to say, well, we have grace. I mean, that's nice, but we have to add we, you can't stop with grace. We need to add a little Moses to our Jesus, right? We need a little law with our grace. We need to make sure we have a guidebook that calls us and tells us the rules, right? That's legalism. I mean, you know, grace and love and all that's great, but, you know, you don't want to go overboard. You know, you need, we, need some, we need some guidance here. License, on the other side, is when we hear, now you don't need the law in order to guide us. And we say, great, I have no guide. I can do whatever I want. Woohoo! Right? And Paul says, well, no, we don't need the rules. We don't need the law to guide us. But God doesn't leave us with nothing to guide us. We're left actually with the person of the Holy Spirit. The church today has the person of the Holy Spirit. Who, who, and that Holy Spirit desires to help us become more like Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus. That's the guidance that's going to help us avoid the gutter balls, right? Get that ball right down the middle. So in this letter, Paul is, he's already told them the good news of grace. He's talking about that, which is we're saved by God's gift. It's not by our effort. It's just his gift because he loves us so much. But then he teaches them that the goal of that grace isn't, oh, so now you get to live however you want to live, right? The goal of grace is actually Christ formed in you. The goal of grace is so that we are even able to even consider becoming more like Jesus, it's because of that grace. He, he just said that back in chapter 4. We won't look at it, but he says we're now being shaped by Jesus. That's the goal, becoming Christ-like. So he says in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity to indulge your flesh. It's okay, you're free. You're free from the law. Good news, awesome. But don't use that as an opportunity to say, all right, well, I can do whatever I want. I can, right? I, it doesn't matter how I live because... Because then what that shows is you really haven't been touched by that grace. You haven't really been touched by grace. Uh, rather, he says, through love, serve one another. Oh, look at that. Through love, serve one another. How do I know that we've been, how do we know that we've been touched by grace? We're not just going through the motions. How do we know we've really been touched by this? We're, we, serve, we 
through love we serve one another. Here's that other-centered love that we keep hammering home here at Generations Church. Love that is focused on others. It's others-centered, others-focused. Dying to ourselves. That, he says, is the, it's the antidote to falling back into the sins of the flesh or falling back into legalism. It's just loving others. Look what he says here in verse 14. Next. He says, For the whole law, whole law. You remember, what he was referring to is the Old Testament, Levitical law. You know, they say there's up to like 614, is that right, Jeremy? 614 rules, right? They came up with 614 laws. The whole law can be summed up in a single commandment. This one word, literally this word logos, this one saying, and here it is. You must love your neighbor as yourself. The whole entire law is fulfilled in that. He says, do that and everything the law was trying to equip you to do, right? But the law kept coming up against your sinful nature, right? It it was like impossible to keep it. So it just manifested, what does it do? It ends up just manifesting in more and more legalism, right? Religious legalism. So he says, let's cut all that away and just just kill the legalist. Focus on this, loving others, loving others. Do that and you fulfill everything the Bible is trying to teach you. Man, how beautiful is that? How profound is that? Now, what Paul is saying here is, is pretty shocking, it's, it's simple and it's beautiful, but it's shocking uh, and it has some, some major implications. Some folks have also noticed that it, it, it almost seems to contradict something Jesus had said years before when he was asked. Someone asked him, you know, Rabbi, what fulfills the law? What, in other words, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says something slightly different. When he was asked, what's the one greatest commandment? He says, well, let me give you two. The first is first foremost that commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So he gives these two commandments. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? All the law depend on these two commandments. Because Paul doesn't even mention the first one, does he? Paul doesn't mention that. He said, you can really just summarize the entire law by the the second one there, love your neighbor as yourself. So what gives Paul the right to do that? Like Paul going rogue here? Did he not read his, his gospels? Right? Where did he get that from? Is this like a complete contradiction between Paul and Jesus? And it's not just Paul, by the way. It's the, the rest of the New Testament writers emphasize this. Uh, over Peter says this in 1 Peter 4. He's, he says, above all, above all. This is the highlight of his teaching above everything here. You'd think he'd say, above all, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, right? No, no, he says, above all, love each other fervently. The Apostle John says in 1 John 3, we know that we have passed from death to life. Here's how we know. I mean, how do you know if you pass from death to life? Because we love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our... No, he didn't say that. Because... The truth is, any religious fundamentalist can do that, right? Any legalist can love God while they shun their neighbor. He says, we know we've passed from death to life because we love each other. The Apostle John, he goes on to say this in the very next chapter. He says, whoever, in fact, whoever claims to love God but hates his brother or sister is a liar. Liar! Man, John. Here's why this is so brilliant. 
This is really brilliant. This is, and this is important. Everything about the scriptures, you know, means something today. We're not just reading history, right? right? And, and it seems like with every passing headline and event that happens in this crazy culture of ours, and you think, well, I can't get any nuttier. It does, right? The scriptures just become more, oh, oh, now I see what they're talking about, right? Here's why this is so brilliant. A lot of people read the command to love God with all their being. That's good, but they kind of mentally stop there. We can stop there, and we never go to that second command to, to love others. And so, let's be honest, we're all guilty of this, right? Especially if you've had, you know, you just go through a season of your life where you're really fervent, and you're like, oh, I just want to like, I want to honor God, I want to worship God, I want to do, God, what do you want me to do? I just, oh, I love you so much. Just, we want to do everything we can. And, and so, we find this love for God so all-consuming, we will actually start to disregard others as we prioritize our religion. Anybody ever found themselves there beside me? So the early apostles say, brilliantly, let's start with the second one and work backwards, right? In fact, they say, if you nail the second one, if you love people because they're made in the image of God, if you love people, well, because God loves them, you're going to be seeing them the way that God sees them, and you're going to serve them that way, and guess what? You're going you're gonna to really be loving God. You really are loving God. You, you are working out your spirituality. You're working out your faith in your relationships with others. That's the evidence of it. So loving our neighbors. Loving our neighbors is the most important thing. That is, it's crazy. It's unparalleled in, in any religion. See, what a lot of fundamentalists want to do is, is stop at the loving God part. Because that sounds really holy. It sounds really pious, doesn't it? I mean, it just sounds right. Doesn't it just sound right to you? Like, the most important thing is love God. It sounds right. What could go wrong? Well, just travel with me to the Middle East. And we, could go, we can see what goes wrong when you stop with loving God, revering God. Right? You can see there are nations of people who are passionate, so passionate about revering their God, they will kill anyone who does not show the same reverence. Right? They're just, they're just loving God. That's all they're doing. They're try, I mean, trying to do the right thing. And now we may say, okay, well, Christians, we're not killing people. I mean, not anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we got our act together. We're not killing people. But here's the thing. If we skip loving others... And we just pat ourselves on the back for our great piety toward God, because, you know, it's all about me and God. Well, then nothing will stop us from even in our actions and the way we do and the way we engage culture and the world. There's nothing to stop us from just uh, uh, forcing other people in our society to revere God the way we do. That becomes the most important thing. That I don't really care if you're saved or not. You need to act like you're saved. You need to act righteous, act holy like I do, right? We force others to behave in a way that seems holy and pious and Christian. Meanwhile, we can show such a lack of love for our neighbors that we have eliminated any chance of loving them into the kingdom. History proves that sad fact that we'll justify just about any horror in the name of putting God first. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength without loving our neighbors, it, well, that looks like the Crusades, doesn't it? And we know about that. It can look like witch burnings. It can look like beheadings. 
It can look like terrorism, right? It can look like throwing people in jail because they're gay. It can look like being a total jerk on Facebook. And so the New Testament says, make a priority of serving others, showing compassion for others, even our enemies. I mean, Jesus goes to the trouble of making sure we get that. Even our enemies, even our enemies. And God says, that's how I know you really love me. Wow. See, God, that is not intuitive. That just doesn't come natural, does it? It's almost like we're going to need like some help. Like we're going to need some Holy Spirit or something to help us do that. Because that's not what comes natural. And God says, that's how I know you're a friend to me. What a strong, powerful message for our lives. It's a message the world needs to hear. As it turns out, all of this actually does agree with what Jesus eventually did tell us. Because later in his life, right in the very last hours of his life, at the Last Supper, uh, he waits until there because the disciples weren't ready before then, I think. Uh, he waits, as recorded in, in John chapter 13, he, Jesus says this, hey guys, huddle around. Remember I was telling you about the love God and, and then second love? A new command I give you. And you know, all their ears probably perked up. <gasps> what? A new command. This is going to supersede everything else. What is it? A new command I give you. Love one another. That's it. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. So we're going to love like Jesus. By the way, who did Jesus die for? Just Christians? No, he died for everybody. For God so loved Christians? No. For God so loved the world. All right. This is how we, this is how we show that we are his disciples. We are going to love like Jesus loved. A little later on in that same conversation, right there at that dinner, he says this, greater love has no one than this. He's he's kind of preparing him, what you're about to see me do. Greater love has this than than they're willing to lay down their life for, for their God. No, it's not what he says. Greater love is this than they're willing to kill in my name. Greater love has no man than this, and they're willing to defend the faith to the death. No, no, no. He says the greatest love I want you to focus on. Here's what it looks like. Laying down your lives for others. And here he plants that seed. Then now the New Testament writers pick up on, and they write. And here's the interesting thing. When I, I, we, we all know this scripture. I love this scripture. It's beautiful. And I noticed with myself, 90% 90% of the time when I'm engaging this scripture, it's usually like on a Memorial Day or something, you know, when we're remembering our heroes or, or a day we might be thinking, we, you know, our mind instantly goes to like the early Christian martyrs, you know, standing there in the Roman Colosseum, they're going to give their life. And, so, and we think, man, that's awesome. Those people were willing to die for a cause. That is love. Uh, I guess I probably won't get a chance to show that kind of love. Oh, well. But here's the deal. This isn't just a command for people who are in a position to physically die for their faith. We're actually not off the hook here. Because we lay down our lives by surrendering our comfort, by surrendering our agenda, maybe even surrendering our rights uh, out of love for others. It's, It's sometimes a frustrating thing to see some of the people who uh, go through the most unloving behavior in order to stand up for their rights and, and those people being Christians. 
when he says we lay down our life. So laying down your life, yeah, it may mean, you know, you stand before the firing squad or whatever and, and die out of love. But for Pete's sake, it at least begins with being willing to lay down your life in the form of your convenience, your comfort, your rights, your power, your privilege. Amen? It be, it's got to begin with that. Sometimes, uh, let's make it, just not arguing with someone who's opposed to you and just listening compassionately to them, it feels like dying inside, <laughs> right? You ever been like, oh, I'm not going oh, to say it back. Oh, I got a good zinger, but I'm not going to say it. It could feel like dying. And you, that's laying down your life in a way, right? Am I right? But if I can't even do that, if I can't lay down my comfort, convenience, my rights, my privilege, I am kidding myself to believe, oh, but if the opportunity was there to give my life, I would. I'm kidding myself. I'm kidding myself. So, which, which brings us back, I just want to touch briefly on this, to this subject of, of abortion. We touched on last week, um, and I told you next week, which is now, we would be coming back to this. I, I spoke briefly on the need for us uh, last week as ambassadors of the kingdom of God to, to maintain a spirit of kindness, with this, uh, especially with this new ruling that just came down from the Supreme Court, reversing Roe versus Wade. We have to maintain a spirit of kindness, a spirit of humility, love for our neighbors, uh, it's a heated subject, right? And even this week, I've continued to have these conversations with folks. And, um, and you know, and I can tell they're really jazzed about this kind of thing. They, they, they're upset. And, uh, but to not have a prideful spirit, to not have an angry spirit, or as we said, like a triumphalist spirit, um, to listen and actually try to understand the fears and the frustrations of those around us. And some of those people are, are fellow Christians um, who might sincerely feel that this court decision was a terrible event in America. And I know for just from talking with you as I look around the room uh, that even some of you in this room, there are people on both sides of that pro-life, pro-choice camps uh, in this room. Um, so whether you are here today and you are the most ardent pro-life person around, or maybe you're like, passionately, you know, pro-choice. If you are first and foremost a Christian, and let me just say, I'm, uh, for just a few minutes, let me just talk to the Christians, okay, for a second. If you're here and you haven't, you know, you're not really a Jesus follower, you're just exploring him, that's awesome. Um, I'm not trying to, you know, tell you what to, what to do or anything like that. I, I just want you to have a relation with Jesus. That's awesome. But to the Christians, let me just talk to you for a second. Whichever side of that uh, debate you were on today, if you're a Christian, that has to mean that there is a difference between you and the world, okay? So listen to me here. Now, whichever side you're on, there, there has to be a difference as a Christian between you and the world, even the people in the world who are on your side. There is a difference in the way we engage, okay? And that difference is not that you are more right in your opinions. It's that you are more loving. Amen. See, you can come to Christ and actually wind up holding the same position on a subject, right? God doesn't want to lobotomize you. Sometimes you end up holding the same position, but for whole different reasons, right? And, and just your whole attitude towards the world changes. So you can be more loving. That, that's the difference we have with the world is that we are more loving in this. And so uh, the, this, this pro-life, pro-choice issue, it's not one, this is one. This is one where laying down our life, here's a great example, laying down our life at the very least, means will, being willing to, to step away from our echo chambers, you know, which are comfortable to be in, to set aside our, our opinions long enough to show compassion for those who disagree with you. And I really am talking to folks on both sides. 
That's what we talked about last week, but it doesn't stop there. Because um, just as important, maybe, maybe even more important, if you truly consider yourself a champion for life and liberty, if you truly consider yourself a champion of life, then we have to be consistent with that. We have to show support. We actually have to support measures that reduce the number of abortions. And by the way, I've never talked to a single pro-life or pro-choice person who didn't agree that the ultimate goal is to reduce the number of abortions. Nobody's been like, abortion's great. I hope we have more. Right? Everybody wants to reduce that number. And so the, if that's the goal, we have to be willing to step in the gap our, ourselves as, as the church to support babies who need families. Amen? Women who need resources. I mean, this should just be obvious. And and voting for pro-life candidates, but then uh, just assuming someone else is going to take care of those women and babies uh, that who need help. That's that's not love. That's lip service, right? That's lip service. It's a form. I call it uh, uh, moral cosmetic morality. It's cosmetic morality or cosmetic righteousness. Uh, it pawns off the cost of discipleship to someone else because there is a cost. There's a cost to being a disciple. I I can tell you this. Let me just be honest with you here. Uh, In my conversations with folks who are are pro-choice and and that are kind of angry right now, people are not mad at the church because we love babies so much. That is not the conversation they're having in, in their echo chamber. Man, those Christians, they're just so loving they love babies so much. No, no, sorry. That's not why they're angry with the church. They're furious because they look at our behavior and our voting record on a host of other issues and, and our rhetoric, and they wonder why we don't care for children or women after they leave the delivery room, right? Don't hate on me. Just love. You gotta love me. Okay. Today, uh, the foster system in, in Texas is so overstretched and overfunded. It is. Uh, there are thousands of kids at this very moment, this morning in Texas, who have been waiting for years for a family uh, to take them in. Not to mention the thousands of children who are, who are available for adoption. Beautiful children. Oh, my goodness. And, and think about it. As the number of abortions decreases due to the reversal of Roe versus Wade, you know, and a lot of uh, those kind of Planned Parenthood and the abortion clinics are closing down, then, then I'm telling you the number of homeless children, of neglected children, desperate women who need assistance, those numbers are about to skyrocket, right? We just, that's not debatable. Those numbers are going to be skyrocketing. And I believe the same Christians who, like myself, are imploring women to, to bring their babies to the world and, and not abort them. We should be the same Christians ready to step up and show that we're willing to be just as inconvenienced as we're asking them to be. Right? Christian couples should be leading the way in fostering and adopting. Now, one of the, there's a lot of different arguments I know, and I hear, you know, one of the big things at, at the heart of some people, when you talk about fostering or adopting, they're just like, you know, if they're being honest, they'll say, I just don't, I don't know if I would, if I would love my adopted child as much as I would love my biological child. I could just tell you, if you talk to any adoptive parent, I won't ask you to raise your hand because I know that's a private thing, but if you talk to any adoptive parent, they'll tell you that ain't the case, right? Uh, uh, Man, adoption, it's beautiful. Some people say, but Scott, adoption's expensive. It's expensive. You hear that a lot, Mel? All the time. All the time. Here's another common myth. 
Can I, can I burst that bubble for a second? The adoption fee in the state of Texas, do you know how much it is? $1,100. $1,100. Guess what else? While you're fostering that child, you know, waiting for the adoption to go through, the state pays you every month like to help take care of it. So basically, it doesn't really cost you anything except for courage, except for some inconvenience, some generosity towards another human being, you know. Basically, the same things we were asking of women who are considering an abortion. Amen? Uh, brings me to this list of, of worries. Here's a list. This is commonly heard from women who are struggling with the anxiety of having a baby, and sometimes they're considering an abortion. You hear them I'm not ready. I can't handle the responsibility. I don't have the money. I'm scared. I'm too young. I'm too old. I won't be good at this. This is too inconvenient. It'll mess up all the plans I've made for myself. This would cost me everything. The tragic irony is this same list. These are the same excuses a lot of Christians give why they won't step up and say, let me help. I'm not ready. I can't handle the responsibility. I don't have the money. I'm scared. I'm too young. I'm too old. I won't be good at this. It's too inconvenient. It'll mess up all of our plans we've made. This will cost us everything. This is, this is a tragic irony. And it's just total hypocrisy. Because we are the church. We are the church. We are Christ's disciples. And I know I'm talking to a limited number of people here. And I'm talking to a lot of people who I know the things that you guys do. Y'all do amazing things for the world, for orphans, for foster kids, for a lot of you have adopted. And so um, I'm talking to a, a small number, you know, just all by ourselves. Like, what difference can we make? But, but this is so good for us to know, to be, to be armed with this information. So as we're talking with, with our other neighbors, you know, we can share this. Um, there is a cost to following Jesus. And anybody who told you there isn't a cost to follow Jesus is, was lying to you. This is what laying down your life looks like. This is what laying down your life looks like because you have the privilege and I have the privilege of not living in a place where we're going to go to jail for serving Jesus. We're not going to get shot for serving Jesus. So this is how we lay down our life. And it's time for the church to act like Jesus. Jesus sacrificed his life for somebody else's. He sacrificed his life for me. He sacrificed his life for you. So we get the same opportunity. Let me show you some other ways just that we can, we can be the kingdom in action. This is how to be the kingdom in, in more than just, just our words. Uh, we talked about it. Fostering a child is so, so beautiful. You know, sometimes uh, fostering is important and because sometimes some families, they just need a, some, someone to give a temporary home to a child. Oftentimes, there's a, there's a parent who maybe is struggling. There's a parent who's maybe having to go through rehab or getting out of jail or a parent who's trying to get out of an abusive situation or something like that. And so there's some time there that that child needs a loving environment until that child can go back home. And that's always a wonderful thing when that happens too. But, uh, but what a beautiful thing. I know James and Sharon, you guys were, have, have done that for, for years. Y'all did that. Just such a beautiful thing to watch uh, them just give themselves to these children who came through their home. Uh, adopting a child. There's so many children ready to be adopted. Respite care. That's, a, that's where, where you actually uh, volunteer to be like a babysitter so that those parents who are doing the fostering can like go have a night, night out have a little break. And it's just being kind of like, we're going to take care for those who are fostering. Um, financially, giving to orphans and ministries that care for orphans, like Home of Hope, that ministry we have here at Generations. Uh, what matters ministry? That's Ivan Tate's orphanages. Um, uh, another one is becoming a CASA, CASA advocate. Uh, Francine Stanfield knows all about that. She, she's just does so much, such beautiful work in the CASA system there. The right, wave your hand, Francine. If ever you need some questions answered there, you can ask her. She can help you with that. Uh, you can volunteer at your local pregnancy assistance center. We've got one right here. Pregnancy assistance center north is nearby. You know, like we said, with the closing down a lot of these abortion clinics, 
PACN is about to get slammed, baby. So they're, they're going to have so many people coming and, and needing help and needing some support. Volunteer at a, there. You can volunteer at outreach programs that help the poor, like Nourishment for the Needy. Diane Nublock, a member of our church, uh, is, is over Nourishment for the Needy. Uh, you can volunteer at a women's shelter. There's a lot of different things we can do to put that love into action. It's, it's, it's kind of like dying to our comfort and our convenience and our rights and all that kind of stuff that we put our love into action. And this last thing is, is an interesting one, support public policies that fund and support babies and working mothers, single mothers. Some of that is like maybe petitioning the company you work for. If you work for a business, come petition them to, you know, offer some, you know, paid leave or something like that. Um, but also, you know, even in the, even in the way we vote, uh, you know, I, I know I'll, I'll make some enemies here, but Sometimes uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a sad convergence. Some of the statistics show us that the, some of the people in America who were most um, vociferously pro-life um, also tend to vote against a lot of measures that would decrease the abortion rate. Um, so paid leave uh, for, for mothers so they can spend a few months actually being a mother. Um, affordable prenatal, postnatal health care. You know, that, I mean, if there's any anything, if we just want to pick one thing in America to uh, make super cheap, it ought to be things that have to do with giving birth. Um, how, how, you know, how can we help with that daycare? All these different things. Some of these things, now I'm telling you, some of these things are going to rub up against your politics, right? Now I'm not telling you this is some kind of like far lefty or something like that. I understand. Some of this stuff rubs up against your politics and it's like, well, that, that sounds like socialism, you know, <laughs> right? But at some point you have to go, well, what, what, what is, am I making an idol of my fiscal policies here or do I want to like save baby lives? You know, what's, what's important here? So consider, consider just measures that you can do and it might mean complicating your politics a little bit. It might mean supporting measures you never thought you would, you would support before, things that actually support uh, support women. Show that we are not just pro-fetus, we're pro-woman, we're pro-baby, we're pro-family. For the early Christians, for the early Christians, their religion, their salvation, the way they worked it out, was expressed not by their political stance. Their religion was expressed most deeply in their sacrificial relationships. Their sacrificial relationships. Because loving others is command one. Loving others, it's kind of like the only command. Jesus said, this is it. It's not the cherry on top, loving others, being others-centered. It's not like the cherry on top of our faith. Like after we get everything else all squared away, ah, I'll start being nicer to people. That's like it. God said, love for one another is it, is, is everything. All of the law is fulfilled. I want to tell you the story because um, I'm talking super fast, so I've got all this time. Um, Dorothy, this woman, Dorothy, um, we'll, we'll, uh, not a real name, but I, I'll change her name. Dorothy had a, had a best friend who was, and the best friend had a daughter who got pregnant. It turns out this daughter, as happens a lot, was closer with Dorothy than, than her mother. It's just a lot of history and chemistry issues and everything out there. So this young lady was too afraid to talk to her mother and father who were very strict. She got pregnant. She, she didn't want to talk to him. She was 18. She was afraid they would kick her out of the house. And so she went to Dorothy. It just kind of opened up her fears and that she was seriously considering uh, getting an abortion. And Dorothy, just without judgment, embraced this young lady. And instead of telling her what to do, she said, what can we do? That word is so important. What can we do. I'm here with you. I'm going to walk with you through this. Now, are you, you know, are you sure you want to get an abortion? Have you gotten all the information? But I mean, this is going to have lifelong 
consequences? Are you acting out of fear here? What can I do to, how can I minister to that fear, right? How can I help you? I'm in this with you. We'll do this together. I think together we can walk through this whole thing. And so Dorothy got involved in this young woman's life. She goes with this young woman to talk to the parents, and unfortunately, they, they, they did reject her. And so Dorothy says, well, I've got a place for you to live. She made a room in her home for this young lady to come live in. She sacrificed even the kind of the awkward relationship she now had with her friend because she was taking care of her daughter. But she gave her a home. She paid a price for this. She was willing to do it. And so the young lady stays there. And then, and then Dorothy, she's helping with the medical bills. She's helping her buy maternity clothing and get that kind of stuff. She's helping with boyfriend issues and there were some legal issues that were, they were involved in. And Dorothy walks with this woman and tells her, she tells her, you know, if you want to give this child up, I'll find this child a nice home. I will. But we'll make sure, he, you know, he gets a comfortable home. And if you want to keep this child, I would be honored to be this child's godparent. And, and I'll help raise this child. Because you see, it's not just what we do before the child is born. It's not just the stand we take before the child's born. It's also what we do after the child's born. So Dorothy gets involved in this woman's life. And the result is that this, this woman is experiencing the kind of sacrificial Christ-like love that, that nobody shouting and condemning her from a picket line would ever be able to offer her. She's experiencing a different kind of love. And Dorothy walks with this young lady and she has the baby and she ends up keeping the baby. They end up keeping it. And she raises this, this baby. And in time, Dorothy even helps bring about reconciliation with the parents. And it's a beautiful story. That I submit to you is being pro-life, kingdom of God style. That's how you do it together. How can we, how can I submit my own comfort? How can I submit my own agenda, my own convenience to serve you? How can I sacrifice, die to something to help see this happen? Now, here's an interesting fact about Dorothy. She usually votes pro-choice. She's weighed all the issues and as a matter of pub political principle, she votes pro-choice. But I submit to you that Dorothy is more pro-life than a lot of pro-life voters, right? If, if it means that they take a half hour every four years and go make their voting choice and then wash their hands of it. Because the kingdom of God happens when we, we replicate Calvary, when we bleed for other people. And that's my vision for Generations Church, that we would be a people, that we would we'd be pro-life Dorothy style. To not just limit our Christian duty to a vote we make every four years, but to ask, what is the kingdom thing I can do today? What can I do today? And my vision for this church is that we would be a place where we sacrifice on behalf of the mother, that we're willing to get in those trenches with, with a mother where, where we trust love more than even we trust law, where we show compassion that's louder than our slogans, compassion that's more persuasive than our Twitter posts. We embrace scared kids without judgment, get in the trenches with them, walk with them to make going full term with that baby, make that viable before and after the, the baby's born. And the one question we need to live in is how can we love? How can we love others? How can we love both woman and child? 
How can we serve them? How can we sacrifice for them? Because that's where the kingdom of God happens. Kingdom of God happens when, when kingdom people bleed for others, when kingdom people sacrifice for others, because there's a cost of discipleship. There just is. But it's a beautiful cost. The blessing is way more than anything you could give. That's real love. That's love that comes alongside of, it it suffers with. It's love that seeks to heal and to soothe, not go, well, you get what you, you you know, you made the mistake, you got to pay for it. Not my problem. No, no, no. It's love that wants to bleed, that wants to get in there. That's Jesus' love. We've, we've talked about this love before, the love in the Bible, agape. Agape love is the choice to relate to someone as infinitely valuable. That's basically a good synopsis of what agape love is. It's not romantic love. It's the choice to relate to somebody as infinitely valuable. So I can see you as valuable because I know God sees you as precious. God sees you as infinitely valuable. And so I don't, I don't gauge whether or not I'm going to love you you know, by first checking out, well, what's your stance on abortion? What's your stance on taxes? How do you feel about immigration? How do you feel about LGBTQ issues? Where are you, where are you on gun control, racial issues? That's not what I base my, whether I'm going to love you or not, right? Now, we may have some really fun arguments over coffee together, right? But I'm going to love you, love you no matter what, because square one we start with the fact that you are infinitely loved. You are infinitely valued by God. You are infinitely precious because you're a human being created in his image. And, and yes, my, my religion informs my politics. But the wild thing I found, I got to tell you, like, man, I've been on a journey. The wild thing I found is that as, as what, what begins to happen is the more I make love my North Star, it complicates stuff. I'm just going to tell you. It gets weird. <laughs> the sacred cows of my politics start melting away. And it's wild that it is liberating and it's beautiful. Amen. And I wouldn't have it any other way. So, so people ask me, why aren't you more political? Well, I, I don't even know where I'd begin. Right? <laughs> like, it's like kingdom of God. Vote kingdom of God, you know? <laughs> Vote kingdom of God. It doesn't really fit in either of the parties so well. Let me make a, a concluding thought, and then I'm going to pose a question to you. Here's what we can say as we study this, this fruit of the Spirit uh, in the next eight weeks, and we seek to develop it in our lives. We could say this, now fruit grows on the tree of its kind. Fruit grows on the tree of its kind. Uh, the fruit we're growing is Jesus fruit. Uh, apples grow on an apple tree because it's an apple tree. So it grows apples. Uh, makes sense. We're growing character traits. The outward evidence of is the, the one in whom we abide. That's Jesus. So we're growing Christ-like attitudes, Christ-like actions, Christ-like perceptions. And uh, and sometimes those will work themselves out differently. Like I said, we're not, we're not trying to make everybody like unified here. We, we can walk, well, we want to walk in unity. We don't have to walk in uniformity, right? So we can come to different conclusions about stuff, but we're doing it in love. Like, oh, that's interesting. I like how you came to that conclusion. You know, I, I didn't come there myself, but yeah, but we're doing it in love. So we're family. We can, we can do that. That's cool. Uh, we're not trying to all like be in lockstep together. Um, 
remember what Jesus said back in John 15, still part of that same conversation where he was talking about that new commandment I give you, the new commandment. He says this, this is what we looked at the very first scripture of the day. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. My father is honored by this, that you bear much fruit and show that you're my disciples. So we're going to pray here in just a minute. I want to ask you a question. The question is this. Do you want to be like Jesus? Amen. Amen, right? Now, think about it. Now, of course, you're going to say yes because you're in church, right? And the pastor just asks you, do you want to be like Jesus? You're like, yes. Of course, right? But if you're really honest with yourself, there is going to be some of us who are going to say, yeah, I mean, I want to be like Jesus, except for that one area over here. Because honestly, I'm kind of enjoying my unchristlike area in my life right there just a little too much. It just feels a little too good to just let loose with that, that thing. The idea of becoming Christ-like, if we're going to be honest, it's hard because we get bonded to our flesh. It becomes part of our identity, right? It's like an identity thing. Like, if I give that up, I'm going to stop being me, Right? And, and sometimes we're just like being a little bit of a jerk just kind of forms part of our identity, right? We're like, that's just who I am. I speak my mind. I don't hold back. I don't care who I hurt. That's their problem, right? I got to be me. Okay. That's, that's who you are. You're somebody who's not ready to follow Jesus. But maybe, maybe you can sense there are areas in your life where the Spirit is, is leading you in a new direction, and it's a direction of love and of joy and of kindness, and patience, peace, goodness, gentleness. And maybe if you're honest, the idea of just suddenly, you know, the reality of all those things just seems so impossible right now. But you're sensing it's where Christ is leading you. I sense that's where he's leading me. And maybe, so maybe for some of us, the question of, do I want to be like Jesus? That might be a little hard to fathom right now, but maybe we could put it this way. Do you want your wants to be like Jesus? I don't always want to be like Jesus, but I want to want to be like Jesus, right? I want my wants to be like Jesus. Because what if you didn't just become like Jesus overnight? What if that wasn't the requirement? Like, like, there was some kind of transactional exchange and you got to like now be Jesus-y in a, some perfect way. But what if in surrendering to Jesus, you gradually found that what you want to do and what you are satisfied does begin to look more like Jesus? So that becoming like Jesus, it's not just some new legalism, right? Here's a new law. Here's another thing you got to do. We got to go and act like Jesus. But you know, maybe actually becoming like Jesus, as you surrender him, Jesus begins to change your heart. And you find your heart change and you find your love, you find a love of being like Jesus. And you actually find more peace and more joy and a freedom in not reacting like you used to. And you don't even enjoy those habits that you used to have. And serving people actually fills you with more pleasure than being served used to. That is the Spirit of God taking root in your life. That is surrendering to Jesus and letting Him grow the fruit. The fruit doesn't really have to do much, 
much effort. You know, if you went up and talked to an apple on the tree, said, apple, man, you were looking good. How'd you do that? The apple would be like, I really don't know. I just, I just been hanging on for dear life to this limb. It's almost like he's doing all the work. That's kind of the way it is. God does the work. He's the one that creates the fruit. We just got to surrender to him. Let him produce it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you for giving us Jesus today as, as this living example of your love for us and what our loving lives can look like, Lord. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to breathe the words and the, the, the mind and the attitude of Christ in us, Lord God. Lord, we want to see Christ just fully formed inside us. And so we pray that you would just shape us to be more like Jesus every day. Help us to be like Christ, in our, even in our wants and our desires, so that we might experience that transformation of the Spirit from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.